I'm Shachar Azani. A few days ago, Rabbi Mark Golub, our beloved visionary founder and president of JBS, Jewish Broadcasting Service, passed away. Mark was an incredible man, friend, and my personal mentor. His passion for everything Jewish, for the Jewish people, and for the state of Israel was evident in all that he did. Mark devoted his life to creating this joint bonfire around which we can all come together, this station where you can enjoy the services, the news, the culture, the language, and all that connects and binds us as Jews, no matter where we are. One of Mark's most important missions was to share the truth about what's happening in Israel and in the Middle East. Truth that too often doesn't find a place, definitely not on social media and not on mainstream media. And to that, we hold great honor of him and his legacy as our leader and as a pillar of light before the camp. Today and every day, we remember him and his great leadership in everything that we do, including this first in the news past his passing. I would like to thank all of you for your support in these not so easy times for all of us at the station, but we shall continue to fulfill Mark's mission and do our job to the very best of our ability for Mark will forever be with us in spirit and in wisdom. Thank you for joining us. Joseph, it's a pleasure to have you with us on JBS. Thank you, Shachar. Uh, thanks for inviting me. First of all, I, I have to ask you, before we dive into the center and the, the, the animated videos, Persian, Arabic, Hebrew, Princeton, Morocco, Tehran, what's up? Tell us a little bit about your diverse background. It's fascinating, and so few people have that level of engagement with this complicated region of the Middle East. Well, it's a lifelong engagement. It begins with uh, having an Iraqi Jewish mother who was born in Baghdad and uh, who fostered um, not only a love for our people and uh, also Israel, uh, but also a sense of identification with the peoples of the Middle East uh, and that we have always been a part of it going back 2,600 years to the destruction of the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem and the Babylonian exile. So it has been a, a very natural and, and visceral sense of connection to the whole region um, and the aspiration to help connect people after all these years of estrangement is, is a lifelong one that I've been working on basically for the past 30 years. You know, language, you speak of it as a connector, but we all know that in the political history of the Middle East, it's also very much used as a divider. When you think about the... Uh, uh, decades ago, during the Oslo Accords, the famous um, attempts to understand what Yasser Arafat was saying in Arabic in the mosque in Johannesburg compared to what he's saying to the donor states in, in Oslo. And yet here you are. First of all, I may ask you, uh, what language did you grow up with at home? Uh, as a child, we, we spoke English and Hebrew uh, at home. That was the language that brought uh, my parents together. They are, uh, my father's and uh, Ashkenazi Jew, my mother Iraqi. Um, he, Arabic was a language of secrets between my mother and uh, and grandmother on you know in phone calls and things like that. Right. It also meant that it, it was a language that I felt very intimate with. Um, 
But uh, so I started studying in college and grad school, Arabic as well as Persian, and then lived many so years. So growing up, so growing up in those um, secret conversations between mom and grandma, it fascinated you, but you, you weren't really able to understand. Only it triggered you to go ahead and study it. That's right. And I'm also a musician. And uh, at a certain point, my mother began to share old records of uh, Um Kulthum and Nazim al-Ghazali after much exposure to the Hebrew songbook, of course. Uh, and so that added to the sense of uh, enjoyment of the language. Uh, I started to learn Oud, the string instrument wow. uh, throughout the Middle East. Um, and so, as I say, it, it really even began as, the, as a sort of a, an artistic and aesthetic interest um, that developed into, you know, concern about, you know, the tensions and the, the terrorism that uh, obviously has been a, a, a tragedy uh, for so many decades. And your ability to immerse yourself in that world so much beyond, you know, just the politics of the region, but the real culture and language and peoples, mm -hmm. I think is an incredible tool to what you're doing today. So maybe enlighten our viewers with a little bit about the center, what is it that you do? What, what, you know, you founded it. When did it come about? What's your vision for it? And what are your ongoing activities? Sure. So I've been working in the realm of, of fostering ties for 30 years. Uh, first as an individual and over time um, have sort of built a network of people around me who have been functioning effectively like an organization. Uh, we have been involved in uh, promoting uh a peace agenda in Arabic books and magazines and, and productions and so on. At a certain point, we felt that we needed a home address. We needed a, uh, a brand and a place that could be a focal point for these efforts. Um, so after publishing a book with a grand strategy to do this in 2019, we founded the Center for Peace Communications. Uh, we're honored to have Dennis Ross chairing our board and wonderful friends, um, who support us in, in many ways uh, in the region and both sides of the Atlantic. And, uh, you know, we started with a very dramatic uh, event in 2019 called the Arab Council for Regional Integration, where we bought, br brought 32 uh, prominent civic actors from 15 Arab countries, including very tough ones like Iraq, Yemen, uh, uh, Libya, and so on, and as well as the peace countries and the future Abraham Accords signers, it hadn't happened yet, right. uh, to jointly and publicly uh, declare their opposition to the boycott of Israel and call for civil relations between Arab uh, Israeli citizens and their societies. And they did it because of Arab interests, because the boycott blocked Arabs across the region from benefiting from partnerships with Israel in every sector, because um, it uh, prevented Arabs region-wide from having a positive influence on Israeli-Palestinian bridge building from a position of friendship. And worst of all, it, what, it became a template. The boycott of Israel became, if you will, the mother of all boycotts and led people to boycott one another using the same techniques within an Arab society, Shiite boycotts of Sunnis and vice versa. Kurdish That's boycott. also happening? Oh, it's been happening for decades. Uh, and so, and we believe there's a, a, an, an intrinsic relationship between reconciliation across borders, Arab-Israeli reconciliation, 
and reconciliation within uh, an Arab society, because the same techniques of scapegoating, blame deflection, and so on that were originally trained at Israel and its people then became a way of fracturing Arab societies in a way that ultimately led to several civil wars and state failure. Um, so we see a holistic approach to address all of these things together. You know, you're talking um, on the Abraham Accords before the Abraham Accords, really laying the foundation that takes a lot of time, but it's super important to understand the importance and the magnitude of what you're saying, because it is so commonplace for say, mainstream media and beyond to focus on issues like Jerusalem and the settlements and what we call the big issues. And yet only recently in Yerushalayim, you had a 13 year old boy coming to fire on Jewish families who were touring Ir David in Jerusalem. To understand that is to understand the root of all evil, the system that fosters and breeds this hatred that is able to fester for decades. Because when we think, when I think of these children, I think of the Oslo Accords and the spirit that we all had when we watched the White House loan ceremony, hoping, thinking utopically that something is gonna change. And yet we've dropped the ball, Joseph. We've allowed generations and generations on the Palestinian side to grow on the knees of hatred and animosity, anti-Semitism and, and violence. And we are reaping those benefits now, those fruits now with, with these acts that we're seeing. And what you're doing is exactly the key of what needs to be done to change that equation, is it not? Absolutely, I want to, but I want to actually add a, a little nuance, uh, contribute a nuance to something what you're basically saying, which is that when those very ugly uh, things happen, where you see hundreds of people in Gaza uh, distributing candy and sweets to celebrate uh, the killing of innocents in Jerusalem, um, what you don't see is the millions of people who stay home. And among those people, we know from extensive polling uh, and, and people who visit the area, that they have a range of views about this. And there are lots of people, in fact, majorities, including according to some polls, who oppose rocket fire coming from Gaza to Israel as self-destructive. They distrust Hamas institutions as corrupt, and they want a different future, including the ones who have serious problems with Israel are saying this uh, violent approach doesn't work, connectivity does work, and even protest that is nonviolent is a better way to express grievance than killing that ultimately, you know, and fighting wars that one can't win uh, where Hamas hides in bunkers and civilians suffer the casualties. So there's this whole uh, stratum of society you never hear from because Last week, while those celebrations were happening, there was a, a shopkeeper in Bethlehem who was denouncing terrorism by Hamas, and he got beaten up and intimidated, and all of that's on a video that's circulating in social media. That shows you why these people are intimidated into silence. And so what we wanted to do with the Whispered in Gaza project was to find a way to platform the many who want a different future. So, so the Whispered in Gaza project, and it's great we reached that because the conversation with you is so fascinating. I assure you, and I'm hoping we're gonna have many more in the future. But I just wanna say as follows. I recently had a <clears throat> discussion with somebody from the other side when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And after about 35 minutes of talk, 
that individual um, looked at me and said, but people in Gaza are suffering so much. Why can't Israel just conquer Gaza, take it away from Hamas, and give these people some freedom? And then they, they paused for a minute and said, I can't believe I just said that, for Israel mm -hmm. to conquer Gaza. So I want to ask you, bearing in mind that scenario, that situation that is very much real, mm -hmm. What hope do we see? Because the people who are holding their hands on the trigger are Hamas and the terrorists. And the, as long as they do that, they're holding hostage all of these people who are you know, wishing for, for a better future on both sides. Yeah, it's a very important question. The answer, of course, is very uh, complex. There are no easy answers. There's a reason why Israel and Egypt as well are, have been sealing off borders for 15 years. And it has to do with the fact that both countries see Hamas understandably as a security threat. On the other hand, no one, I mean, certainly no one who gets to know people in Gaza as we have is under the illusion that uh, uh, everybody is in lockstep with Hamas. And so the question of what are the options to empower the many who are opposed to Hamas within Gaza, uh, while this stalemate that has no end in sight goes on. And that's part of the reason that we wanted to um, engage these people. And by the way, a thousand of them braved gunfire and prison in 2019 to protest Hamas rule. So there's some of them have great courage, right? Yeah. Um, and some of them continue to protest in, in, in subtler ways. So that's the key question. How do you, over time, empower those who want a different future? Uh, because in every situation, you can't necessarily force change from the outside. You have to have a strategy that involves empowering the people who want change inside. And, uh, and I think, you know, what you're saying is, and that's very, very true, you don't despair, you don't give up hope thinking about your experience, mm -hmm. and you continue to work because the fact that we haven't done so enough in the past few decades has led us to where we are. Is that not the case? Yes. And what we discovered, um, first of all, the fact that we were able to, you know, using skills that we've honed over many years, but nonetheless, the fact we managed to engage dozens and dozens of people in Gaza. So let's talk about let's, that for a minute. Whispered yeah. in Gaza is a series of how many animated videos? 25 animated videos. And we, uh, we're, we'll watch one or two of them in the course of this ITN. And I urge all of our viewers, please take those moments. Those videos are not too long. They're less than three minutes each, I believe. Yes. And all of them are very instructive about what's happening in Gaza, where you hear it nowhere else. Now, how did you reach those people? Like some people would say, I don't even know if that person is real. Talk to us about the method for a minute. Sure. I'll say about that, by the way, before I get into the method, <laughs> that... Um, Three uh, publications that enjoy great respect were all given a chance to review the original footage. Oh. Uh, and all of them have published the fact that's Arab News, Times of Israel, and Al Arabiya, which is one of the largest outlets in the okay. Middle East, that right. they independently authenticated the testimony. Super important. So yeah, no, we felt that was uh, crucial, and we we want to show it to people to people yeah. we trust, because um, you know we want the world to know that the this is real testimony. Uh, obviously, the reason that we animated it and used technology to the alter the voices is, you know, you see the violent uh, retribution that Hamas meets out on anybody who doesn't praise them. 
Um, so you have to find a way to, to keep these people safe. Um, now, uh, we don't really get into uh, sort of precisely how we do these things. Uh, as you know, uh, we also convened 300, we mobilized 300 Iraqis in 2021 to convene in public in open defiance of Iraqi militias right. uh, and call for peace with Israel. Um, and, uh, you know, that is an, also an example of the kinds of capacities we have to mobilize a lot of people uh, in any Arab country. Um, so the point is, these people uh, are trying to communicate. They have tried in the past through social media and other means through a one street protest that was substantial. And so they're out there and there are ways to find them. And when you find them, what you discover is they want to be heard. So when you when you identify them, uh, some of them have been in prison for protests, they're, they're strong, they're brave, um, and you offer them a way to communicate where, where they know that you're gonna, they're gonna reach a global audience and they don't have to worry or the risk is severely diminished, um, they are very keen to tell their stories. Um, and so we simply built on that willingness. Joseph, that willingness, I want to ask you, they trusted you. They recorded themselves on video with you. Yes. They knew the risk. If this video leaked in the hands of these murderous terrorists, it won't be good. Uh, How were you right. able to build such a such a relationship of trust with them? Uh, well, I think that, uh, first of all, the genuineness of approach of an approach uh, can come across um, very clearly. Uh, these are smart people. Uh, they can tell somebody who really is sincere about his desire to help and distinguish that from a, you know, a cynical person who is trying to do something that will not help them. I would add that- What, what important words you're saying now that are not heard enough on the in the public uh, sphere. Genuine sincerity. And I urge all of our viewers to understand that these are the key components of a successful diplomacy and public diplomacy to be able to speak your truth. I really salute you, Joseph, for this approach. And thank you for highlighting this for us and for our viewers, because it is so missing from public discourse. I mean, the first point, of course, is that you broadcast genuineness by spending a lot of time learning the language, right? And the minute that people see you've done that, they hear the love because, you know, somebody who studies the language on the basis of know thy enemy, it's going to be brutal. It's going to be coarse. Uh, but when they hear the music of the communication uh, and, uh, you know, they say the hardest thing about learning a language that most advanced stage is being able to tell a joke and make somebody laugh uh, in their language. That in itself is uh, an important signal. And when you establish trust, mutual trust, of course, has to go both ways. Right. Uh, there's so many things that you can do. Uh, what uh, you're saying now is also a reason for <clears throat> great hope because we know Israel and so many Israelis who came from the Middle East are you know either speak Arabic, are very proud of their heritage and their traditions on a variety of levels, like you said, from film to music to culture to food. So that in and of itself, doesn't it provide a great bridge for us to work on in strengthening the relationships between peoples of the region? Absolutely. And uh, 
what it does is, I mean, these the generation that uh, that fled Arab countries at those very difficult moments in the mid 20th century and a little bit beyond are getting older. Uh, they are a precious, I mean, they're a national asset in Israel because they're a natural bridge uh, uh, to their, uh, you know, ancestral um, birthplaces and so on where they lived for so long. I'll add that grandparents in Gaza, in Iraq, in uh, Yemen, and many other places remember the days when there were Jews there, okay, and they were not I mean, not to idealize them, but there were finer moments of coexistence. Right. And they tell their stories to their grandchildren. Their grandchildren are very intrigued and curious, and now there are ways to learn through virtual means and so on. Uh, and so the grandparents are crucial uh, in every country in the reason, region, and certainly in Israel. And now there's- You know, but I dare, I dare take it a step forward, Joseph, and tell you also that sometimes, especially in Israel, grandchildren are sometimes as important. I look at myself and, you know, uh, uh, an Uber ride I took a few weeks ago from the airport where I was picked up by a, an Arab Yemenite refugee driver who arrived in this country only a few weeks ago on an, as an asylum seeker. And we immediately engage as, you know, we share a, a sort of Yemenite heritage. I come from the Jewish side and he's Arabic. And there was immediately that connection that was created. So kudos to you. And I think that there is a lot of ground that you could work on, that we could work on to make life better. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's crucial. And also it helps people understand in a way that all Israelis are, first of all, we are all rooted in Iraq, uh, whether Ashkenazim or uh, uh, Mizrahim. Um, we're all the, the children of Avraham from Ur Kasdim. Uh, and now Israelis are increasingly intermarried. Um, and so this is certainly a Mizrahi thing, but it's all Israelis. And, uh, you know, when Moroccans started to, to admit uh, people of Moroccan origin, into the country again, decades before the Abraham Accords. Right. You now that gradually turned into something where, well, who isn't a Moroccan if they're one of their parents, one of their grandparents? Um, and so it's it's good for Mizrahis to be bridge builders. And ultimately it's a way of expanding that for all Israeli citizens. So Whispered in Gaza <clears throat> is one of the most important um, ways today for people to communicate authentically with what's happening in Gaza, because Hamas keeps it very much barricaded. We know about the uh, you know, lack of real media interaction with the people. What kind of reactions have you received, both from within the region and outside of it? It's very interesting to hear. So as, I've, uh, as I think you know, we translated, we created versions of this material in seven languages, English, Spanish, Portuguese, Farsi, uh, um, anyway, I'm French uh, and wow. so on. So we got and we got outlets in all these countries on four continents to push it out. So the debate is global about this material. What I find to be most significant is three reactions in the Arab world, which our largest audience is there. Um, people are questioning the Hamas narrative that has dominated the airwaves for years because they're actually seeing the real story of Gazans and what Gazans actually think. Um, and it's causing them to reevaluate what they've been fed and that they've received passively for so long. In 
Iran. It's one of those, one of your videos actually relates to that word victory. Yeah. What is victory? What where is, is the victory? victory? Yeah, exactly. Victory? Yeah. And another video where a woman says it's we're we're forbidden to say we don't want war. Uh so there's one reason why you never hear from them. Um, second point, our second largest audience is English speakers, primarily in North America. And among those who are pro-Israel voices, they're not only disgusted by what they learn about Hamas, things they didn't know before, but they're also developing empathy for the people who are suffering under that regime. And they're asking, gosh, the question that you asked, what, what can we do to help and empower these people? Because there's so much overlap in what they want and what we want. And in Iran, where we're also having a large audience among the, the growing protest movement in Iran, right. they're learning where the money has been going all these years. And they're seeing it, you know, their regime told them this is to support uh, Palestinian rights and so on. Now they're seeing, no, it was an effort to to export the same revolutionary extremist ideology that Iranians are suffering for and from and do not want. And so they're seeing the parallels. They're saying, wow, what Gazans are going through is exactly what we've been going through for all of these years. Um, so that those are, to, to me, the most meaningful uh, outcomes in the way that this is uh, catalyzing a new discussion. The, the kind of outreach, this is such an important project it's important that every organization that seeks to tell the truth about what's happening in the Middle East in a constructive, genuine, authentic, and productive manner shares these truths everywhere. And we are approaching a time where on college campuses, you have the hate fest against Israel and so many um, you know, disinformation and misinformation. Imagine if there was a chance in each and every campus where this happens and beyond to have a, a screening of some of these videos along with a panel discussion or let's talk about what's really happening here. Yes, absolutely. And, and actually, in that piece I published earlier this week, I mentioned that Hamas is trying to um, undermine this effort. They have, uh, first of all, every day they seem to be launching bot attacks on our distribution platforms. So far, we have successfully protected our platforms, so they have not succeeded. The other thing they're doing is they're creating counterfeit videos where they create their own voiceovers that spread a pro-Hamas message and sow confusion. We are a small organization. We've gotten 3 million followers in the first two weeks. We're proud of that. But we're, Hamas has a much more powerful uh, distribution platform. And so we are asking everyone with a platform of their own to join us in, uh, in lending expression to Gazan voices on their own uh, platforms. And they can contact us and we can help them. So uh, let's talk about contacting you. Do that. How, do, how do our viewers and everyone keep track of your work of Whispered in Gaza and all of the other projects you're doing, how can we keep in touch with you? On Twitter, we're uh, PeaceCom Center, uh, 1M, P-E-A-C-E-C-O-M Center. Uh, on Instagram, we're PeaceComs, 2Ms. And we have a website, and you can use any of those platforms to uh, reach What's out. What's your website? It's uh, www.peacecoms2ms.org. Peacecomes.org. And everybody can follow your news and publications and projects. And when it comes to airing those videos, the ability to share them wide and high as much as possible, that's... Yes, and we will, we're happy to talk to anyone. We're happy to walk them through 
what we find to be the most effective way uh, to use their platforms to get the material out there. Joseph, I can tell you just how much I enjoyed having this conversation with you today. Thank you for who you are, for what you do, and for all that you will continue to do. I assure you that we will keep in touch. I look forward to it, Shachar. Thank you for uh, having me on. Of course. And thank you for having us, uh, for joining us on JBS. Um, you know, more than it was a fascinating and enlightening conversation, I think for all of our viewers and organizations out there, you can take advantage of this incredible tool to share the truth about what's happening in the region, as we say, from directly <clears throat> from the people who are affected. So Joseph, to you and your team, keep up the great work and keep on sharing the truth with the world. And we will join you as much as we can in doing the same, hoping that these efforts will serve to build more bridges of understanding between peoples and nations worldwide, because we have to understand the overarching goal here. It's not about, you know, hitting back and fighting continuously. It's about at the end of the day, being able to live peacefully side by side, which is a common hope for all of us. Is it not, Joseph? Chad Mashmai. And to all of our viewers, I'd like to say thank you so much for joining us. For JBS, I'm Shahar Razani. Until next time. Shalom and Lehitraot.